As I said, Pastor Brian is away, so it's my privilege today to open God's Word with you. So I direct your attention, I'd like to direct your attention now to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. The verses are actually printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there or turn in your, elect, turn in your electronic device. Or actually there's these things called books that we have that are Bibles that have paper in them. It's a thin substance. Um, you can follow along in there and I'd encourage you to follow along in one of those mediums as you are able to do that with us today. We, our church family has been making our way through the book of Philippians. If you're new to Christianity, if the Bible's maybe a slightly unfamiliar book to you, it's a book, but it's con- composed and configured in 66 different divisions that we actually call books. So the books within a book. 39 of those were written before the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. 27 of them were written afterwards. Today we look at one of those that was written roughly 20 years, 20 to 30 years after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Written by, it's actually a letter, we call it, a, again, some of the our traditions are a little odd to me, it's, we call it a book, but it's actually a letter written by a man named Paul, who is a follower of Jesus, who was raised in a strong home, who is the top of his class, um, but somewhere along the way, Jesus invaded his life in such a way that the Apostle Paul went from trying to kill Christians, trying to squelch the message of the gospel, to traveling around doing nothing but proclaiming it himself. One of the cities that he found himself in preaching the gospel about Jesus, the message about Jesus, was the city of Philippi, a Roman colony of some importance because of where it was located on a significant traveling path um, for the Roman army, for the Roman government. Citizens of Philippi were also citizens of Rome. Back in the day meant power, prestige, and privilege, and protection. Could I have another fee there? Maybe if I thought about it, I might be able to. Um, but it was a significant city that he's writing to. He's writing to Christians living in Rome who first heard the message about Jesus from his own mouth. And it changed their lives. And he's writing them some years after he first visited to them about what it looks like for them to continue to be committed to the message of Jesus that he first preached, to be committed to one another, but also to be committed to living faithfully in a world that does not understand what it is to follow Jesus. So we've been making our way through this letter verse by verse, trying to understand what it says, what it means, and how we're to respond to it. And that's our task this afternoon. So I want to direct your attention to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. This is the Word of God. Paul, by the way, Paul is writing somewhat mid-thought here, so um, if that's, it may sound like it starts in a funny kind of way, and we'll pick up that as we go, but just so in case you feel like you missed something, you probably did. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 12 of the book of Philippians. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from this your word. We need the work of your Spirit to understand, to illumine our darkness. We pray that the truth of your Word would shine even into the darkest corners of our lives. 
that we would walk away changed people. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. If you've traveled anywhere with any group of people, you've heard the question that I'm about to ask you. And that question is, are we there yet? If you've traveled with children, you've probably heard it repeatedly. All of us were once children, so we've probably asked our parents in any car ride, are we there yet? And if you think about it, it's kind of a ridiculous question. Because it's one of those things that should be blatantly obvious. You know, in our moments of cynicism, which happens to the best of us, we want to turn to our children when they ask the question and say, are we still in the same cramped car that we've been in for the last four hours? Are you still cramped? Do you still want to get up and rock around, but we're making you wear your seatbelt? It should be obvious to us. That question should be obvious to us. But it begs another question or another series of questions. My kids have learned these other questions to ask because they know are we there yet is a pointless thing to ask us. What they ask instead is, how much longer? We've actually learned this trick from a pastor that I, that I used to work with in the Kansas City area. And the trick was, we used the, the rear view mirror as sort of a gauge to measure how far along our journey is. The house, our house is on the left and our destination is on the right. And our kids know to ask, how much longer? We, we point to halfway or a quarter of the way or three quarters of the way. It doesn't help a lot, but it helps a little bit. It gives you some perspective. But when we ask the question, are we there yet? What we're really asking is, how much longer? And we're asking other questions along with that. How much longer am I stuck in this car with these people? We ask, we're asking, will we like it when we get there? Will the destination be worth the crampness and the stuffiness of this car where we can't get up and move around? Will we like it enough to make the trip worth it? It's the question that Paul faces as we read these five verses in Philippians chapter 3. The question is, are we there yet? It's not about a physical destination, it's about the Christian life. The destination that Paul sets forth for us is what we see smack in the middle of these verses. As you look at verse 14, Paul says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I I press on toward the goal of the prize... For the, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is Paul hinting at something greater than what he wants to tell us in these verses. What Paul is doing is he's, he's using this, these words for shorthand to describe the goal of the Christian life. He's referencing what we talked about last Sunday, if you were with us, when he speaks of the singular goal of his life as to know Jesus. He spoke in these terms, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may gain Christ, that I may know Him in the power of His, of His resurrection, that by any means possible I may t- attain the resurrection of the dead. That's from verses 8 to 11 of this same letter. Again, the previous few verses. But then in the next section that we'll look at next week, we hear Him say this, that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Paul is talking about a goal. He's talking about the aim of the Christian life, the destination of the Christian life. In the shorthand of talking about the call of God in Christ Jesus, what he's talking about is that really super Christian word that we use called salvation. Not in something that we experience only in this life, but something that we are aiming towards in the next. Of all eternity spent in the the presence of God, being made like Him, having these bodies transformed to something that can only be described as glorious, 
which should be beyond our imagination, and it is. It's the, tra the trajectory that Paul has set forth for us. But the question, as I've said, that he's dealing with is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Reading between the lines of what he writes in these verses, it seems that there are some in Philippi who are claiming, yes, we've actually already arrived there. We're done. And that seems to lead to one of two things. Either it leads to arrogance, which says, I'm better than you, I've got it figured out, and I'm going to look down on you, and I'm going to treat you that way. Or it leads to apathy, which says, the race is done, we're all done, there's no reason to do anything whatsoever in this life. We lead to, it leads to arrogance or apathy. But Paul's response to this question, are we there yet, is very simply, No. And he says, in fact, both in verses 12 and again in verse 14, he says, I press on. I'm pursuing something beyond what I can see right in front of me. He's saying, I'm chasing after it. I press on. But for you and me, we want to ask over and over again, are we there yet? Because when we're honest in our pursuit of this goal, again, if you're a Christian, I'm kind of making an assumption that you're somehow chasing after this goal of eternal life in the presence of God. In our pursuit of this goal, it's easy to get lost. It's easy to get lost in our comparison with one another. How's my life look, to look like compared to the person sitting next to me or the person across the room? Why are they not suffering like I suffer? Why do they not seem to struggle with the same things that I struggle with? We get lost in frustration. We get lost in despair. We get lost in failure of doing the same things over and over and over again, wondering why on earth are we doing this. But we also get lost in success. We get lost in the good things of this life when we're convinced that it's something that we've figured out, when it's something that we have gained and grabbed, grabbed a hold of that the other people in our lives haven't. And it leads us to being lost. And when we're lost, we find ourselves asking in moments of stark honesty, is this important? Is this life important? Will I ever change? Will there ever be improvement? Will I ever grow up? Will I ever know something different than what I know now? But Paul, we hear say, twice in this passage, I press on. I press on. What does he mean? And what do we do with that? What does it mean for us to press on like Paul would say? The first thing I think that Paul takes, the first way that Paul answers the question, how do we press on, is simply by confessing what is true and holding on to that to begin with. Notice where he takes us in verses 12 and 13. First of all, in, in verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect. And then look again at verse 13. He says very much the same thing. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. You see, Paul is in part confessing what is true about himself. Paul is confessing, if the question is, are we there yet? Paul is saying very honestly and very personally, I'm not. He's writing to people that would have looked up to him as their spiritual father. And he's saying, I'm not there yet. Now, remember where Paul is when he's writing these words. He told us in chapter 1, he mentions his imprisonment. And at the end of the book, he's, at the end of this letter, he's going to actually speak of Caesar's household. Paul's in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. 
His body bears marks that he received for doing nothing but talking about Jesus in a public way. And he's saying to you and me, I'm not there yet. To say that a different way, what Paul is saying is my being in jail for talking about Jesus, which doesn't look like my life, by the way, my being in jail for talking about Jesus is not enough to say that I've arrived, to say that I'm done, to say that I've figured it out. In this moment of honesty, Paul is saying, I don't have it all yet. The thing that I long for, the thing that my life is devoted to, the thing that my life is all about, I'm still reaching out for something more. Paul starts with a confession for you and me to say, I'm not there yet. This is the man who said in an earlier letter that he wrote to Christians in Rome, that I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The thing I hate doing, that's the stuff I keep doing. Paul is honestly saying, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. But there's another truth there in verse 12 that he confesses, that he holds on to. Notice how he writes. He says, I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It's the confession that says, not only do I look at my life and realize very quickly that I haven't arrived yet, that I'm not done, but I also look at my life and realize Christ Jesus has made me his own. If you think in terms of a, of a travel, travelogue here, he's already on the journey. And he's saying this with humble confidence. I'm not done. I'm not where I want to be yet. But Christ Jesus has made me, my own, made me his own. Christ Jesus has taken me for his. And that's changing everything. You see, this is what opens the door for you and me. It's what starts the race. If this were not true, if Paul were saying, I press on, but I don't know about what Jesus is doing, I don't know about what Jesus has done, then Paul would have to admit that his works are futile. That his jail time is, is a waste of time if he doesn't know that Jesus is engaged with him. But rather, even as he says, I'm not done yet, I'm not there yet, I haven't arrived, he's saying, Jesus has me. And that makes all the difference. And, and here, that what Paul is saying is he's saying something with deep content. When he professes the name of Jesus here, to say, Jesus has taken hold of me already, it's as if to say, I have a faith in someone. I don't have optimism. I don't have sunshine waiting around the corner. I don't have a cloud with silver lining. What I have is Jesus, who has taken hold of me with hands that bled for me, with a body that was beaten for me. Paul is saying, he's taken hold of me already. And that makes a world of difference. We press on by confessing what is true. You and I can learn to press on by learning to say to ourselves and to one another, I'm not there yet. And we can learn to say to one another, Christ Jesus has a hold of me. I think there's freedom for us in being able to confess that we're not there yet. There's freedom for us in being able to, to reset our expectations. It, you see, by acknowledging that I'm not done, it takes away the surprise that sin can be for followers of Jesus. We treat sin as if, where on earth did that come from? But the reality is, if we're not there yet, it's still a part of our life. It's what Paul says. It's what the Bible tells us over and over again. 
That there's something so deeply flawed about what it is to be human. And it's not just a matter of performance. It's not just a matter of achievement. It's not just a matter of bad words that come out of my mouth. But it's a matter of my inner desire. What the Bible calls our heart. That is corrupt. And that it is in need of grace. And that even as Jesus takes hold of us, that still lingers for us in this life. And so the call is to reset our expectations. Because often our expectations can can sound greater than reality. If we have this expectation that we will not sin ever, if we lose sight of the fact that we're not done, we we misunderstand what sin is altogether. Sin becomes something that's merely something I messed up again. It becomes merely failure instead of something that is deeply flawed about me in need of anything, in need of God's grace above all else. So I ask you, Parents, do your kids look at you and only hear you talk about what you've already figured out and how you've already arrived? Do others of us, do your friends, do your roommates, do they know from your own mouth and from the way you live your life that you haven't arrived yet? Or is all we see of one another pretending that we've already got it all figured out and that we're done But with that as well comes the reminder that Jesus has us. Our comfort doesn't stand or fall. Our security doesn't stand or fall on our grasp of Him. But it's rooted, it's grounded, it flows out of His grasp of us. We press on by confessing what is true about ourselves and about our Savior. As we keep reading, not only does Paul call us to confess what is true, he also says we press on by keeping our eyes forward. It's what we see in verses 13 and 14. Look with me there, if you will. He says says in the middle of the verse, One thing thing I do, forgetting what is behind and and, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. It's these twin things that Paul calls us to. Forgetting what, is, what lies behind and straining forward what is ahead. The imagery that Paul's using seems to be that of running in a race. And so when he talks about forgetting what lies behind, what he's calling us to, what he's saying he has learned about this process of pressing on is not fixing his attention on where he's been, but rather looking forward. He says forgetting what lies behind. Now, this, what we need to understand about this, this is a question of direction. You see, because if you, I, look, I don't. I was trying to think about this this week. I don't think I've ever run a race for anything that like mattered or anything like that. But I imagine the way not to run a race is with your head facing backwards. It's a matter of direction. That's what Paul is trying to get us to say. It's not a question of should I think about how my parents treated me growing up. It's not a question of should I think about what I did last week. It's not a question of do I look back and see how God has been faithful in my life. By Paul's own example, in this very letter, all those things are resounding absolutely. There's much to be gained by learning about your past. But what Paul is calling us to hear is to not let that be the thing that guides our life. When he says forgetting what is behind, he's saying move your attention away, move your constant attention away from your past. Because some of us know what it is to live in our past. Some of us know what it is to live constantly looking backwards, constantly looking to the side, 
constantly looking around to see who's catching up to us, whatever that means in the reality of life. Paul is saying forgetting what lies behind. But he adds to that the other side of this, right? He says, again in verse 13, he talks about straining forward to what lies ahead. One scholar describes the imagery this way. He says it pictures a runner with his eyes fixed on the goal, his hands stretched out towards it, and his body bent forward as he enters the last and decisive stages of the race. When Paul talks about straining forward, he's not simply saying try harder, try harder, try harder. What he's describing is the whole body endeavor of chasing after a goal. If you've played ultimate frisbee, this is laying out for the perfect frisbee. This is, the, this is the wide receiver diving for the catch in the end zone to win the game. Where you realize that once you leave the ground, you're all in. Because you can't change direction. You can't do anything except continue to stretch out forward and look for that ball or that disc to crawl into your hands and win the game. It's the whole body, the whole life commitment is what Paul is talking about. When I was in middle school, I've told a few of this, I think, you this, I think. When I was in middle school, I was, on the, I was in the archery club. And that's not because I was into hunting. It was because my debate coach was also the archery coach. And he said, hey, why don't you come to archery club? So I said, sure. And I'll let you think about what that means I looked like when I was in middle school. But when you're shooting a bow and an arrow, which I've never done to a live target at all outside of that upper room in our gym, when you're shooting a bow and arrow, aim is everything. Aim is everything. That may sound silly to some of you who do this a lot more than me, but aim is everything. It really is. Now, it's important to realize that when you choose your bow, we had to pick our bows. Make, I had to make sure that it fit my arm length because not all of them I could draw back far enough. And I had to think about what the position of my arms, and I had to think about having my finger guard on so that I could pull the string back appropriately. And I had to think about how I set the arrow on so that one, the, the one, it's not called a feather, but the one feather is pointing outwards. That's anybody shoot a bow, you know what I'm talking about. One, it's got three, three feathers on the back, and one of them has to be pointing away. So there's stuff to think about. And if you're actually hunting animals with a bow and arrow, you've got to think about wind conditions. You've got to think about the environment that you're shooting in. There's all kinds of stuff to take into account. But at the end of the day, the thing that matters is your aim. And if you pick up a bow and arrow, and all you do is look at the bow, you're going to miss your target. And if all you do is look at your arms, you're going to miss your target. And if all you do is think about the weight of the string as you pull it back, you're going to miss your target. Why? Because you and me were made, our bodies were made in such a way that we look to where we're heading. And when you're shooting a bow and arrow, you need to, you need to have your eye on the target. Otherwise, you'll miss it altogether. It's the same in most parts of our lives. What do we tell young drivers? Don't turn the radio on. Why? Keep your eyes on the road. Because if you don't keep your eyes on the road, your car won't be on the road very much longer. When you're hitting a nail with a hammer, I know you're worried about hitting your fingers, but they tell you, where should you be looking? At the head of the nail. Because if you're not looking at the head of the nail, what your body will do is it will adjust and it will miss the head of the nail and you will be frustrated with yourself and with other people in the world around you. Everything works this way. But the beauty is, for those, for those who have learned the skill of, of archery, for those who have learned the skill of marksmanship, for those who have learned who drive, which is probably many of us, I guess. Um, whatever it is, our bodies were made such that as we look, so goes our bodies. And we look at the target. When we, when we teach a child to hit a baseball, what do we tell them? Keep your eye where? On the bat? No, keep your eye on the ball. Because your body is made to adjust so that when your hands swing the bat, they know where to hit. To hit the ball into the outfield. 
where we look is where we're heading. And that's, that's really the emphasis of what Paul is saying. Where you look is where you're heading. And so he calls us to keep our eyes forward, to forget what lies behind. Don't run looking backwards. Run looking forwards towards the goal. It's easy for us to live in the past. It's easy for us to live, to live by going over and over what it is that we've accomplished, who we were in high school, who we were in middle school, who we were in college. Many people spend their lives thinking about very little than who they were in college or in high school or in middle school. It's easy to live there. And the reality is straining it forward towards what is ahead of us is scary business. Because like I said, it's laying out for the Frisbee. It's the whole body commitment of trusting God and saying, I'm going to throw myself into this. And what happens, happens. Because as soon as my feet leave the ground, I lose control. And what happens, happens. We need to acknowledge that reaching out into the unknown, which is what is ahead of us, can be scary because it involves trust. Hear me say, this is not a matter of achievement. When Paul talks about forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, he's not trying to say, accomplish more, accomplish more, accomplish more. He's talking not about achievement, but about aim. Transformation is Jesus' work, not ours. It's what we'll see next week. Change happens in us because Jesus is at work in our lives, not because of what we accomplish. But the question for us is can you keep your eyes forward? Notice, though, where Paul ends in the last two verses, in verses 15 and 16. Because simply what he says is, as we press on confessing what is true, and as we press on keeping our eyes facing forward, the final thing he says in these verses is, we press on together. Now, before I insult your intelligence and make, you make this into a great buddy movie that we've all seen, where you've got two people from the different sides of the tracks, the different sides of towns, different absolute opposite personalities coming together and by the end of the movie they're great friends and their lives are changed. That's not what's happening here. Okay, let's just be honest about that. But notice where Paul takes us in verses 15 and 16. First, look with me at verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Now, it's, it's possible that if there were some claiming that they've already attained this kind of perfection, it's possible that Paul is throwing a jab their way to say, if you're mature, I want you to think this way. But he also means what he says when he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. What is, he, what is it that he wants us to think? The first thing he says there in verse 15 is he says, and if anyone, if anything you think, if any, sorry, think this way. And if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. If in anything you think otherwise, what Paul is calling us to do is in the midst of living life together, in the midst of being committed to one another as Christians, if we find that there are minor things where we disagree with one another on, whether it's alcohol use, whether it is how we school our children, whether it's how we discipline our children, whether it's what we do for fun, if there are minor, minor side issues, secondary issues, our call is to trust God, that God will reveal wisdom to us. It's what Paul reflects other places in Scripture where he talks about the work of the Spirit of God in his people shaping how we think about this world and how we think about what it is to follow him faithfully. It's not about, look, if, if you worship two different Jesuses, it's okay, it'll all get figured out in the end. That's not really what Paul is saying here. What he's actually talking about is minor secondary issues. And the call for us is to trust that God is at work. 
But notice what he says at the end of these verses in verse 16. He adds to this. And he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is learning how to trust each other as we walk side by side following Jesus. He's talking to a gathering of Christians, a church. He's saying, hold fast to that which you know is true, to what you've attained. Remind one another, is what he's saying, of the truth of the gospel. Walk together towards this one thing. The center of the Christian life is knowing Jesus. It's what he said is the goal. He said, keep your eyes together fixed on that as you walk forward. So with differences, with differences about schooling your children, with differences about alcohol consumption, with differences about discipline, with differences about vocation, with differences about free time, with differences about entertainment, those are separate from who Jesus is and what he came to do. Scripture speaks in other places about freedom, but here the call is the trust that God will be at work through his word, through you, and in you. The call is to trust. But the reality is we press on together. We press on together chasing after the same thing in pursuit of what is true, helping one another remember. We say this a lot, and I think you all understand it, but just in case, I'm going to say it again. In the middle of our service when we pass the peace, that's an important part of worship for us. I know if you shake my hand, I'm going to ask you about the football game you watched yesterday. If that's offensive, I apologize. Because it... I don't mean to treat that lightly. It's just how I connect with people. But the reality is we have the passing of the peace and part of our worship service as a way to say, you are not alone. We do this thing together. And we stand together. We celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way of holding on to what is true, what we've already attained. To cling to Christ together. It's when we baptize our children in a, in a, in a worship service to help one another take vows where we commit to one another, where we commit not only parents, but we commit as a community to walk alongside parents as they seek to raise children together. It's why we take membership vows to do this together. We confess what is true. We cling to what is true. We confess to what is true. We look forward, not backwards. And we do it together. Do you hear what it is that Paul is giving us here? He's giving us a picture of what it is to be mature. Scripture speaks of knowing Jesus beginning with what, we, what the Bible itself calls a new birth. And periodically we hear, we hear in Scripture making reference to growth and growing up in the Lord. What Paul pictures in verses 12 through 16 is a picture of maturity. He focuses a lot already, we've heard him say a lot already in this letter to the Philippians about the past work of Jesus, what Jesus accomplished by being born as a little baby, living a perfect life, dying in our place and rising again and being set at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And Paul has talked much about the glory that awaits the believer. And yet in between the past work of Jesus and the glory that awaits us is Monday morning, tomorrow morning. And it's what he has for us. And so he sets up, he sets up for us not only this, this eternal goal of being transformed and be made like Jesus with glorified bodies. But he sets out for us what, it, what we should expect in this life and what we strive for in this life, what it is to be mature. Not only to see the future, but to aim in this life for what God would have for us. And maturity is a funny thing. If we don't know what we're chasing after, 
We may not know how we intend to get there. And what Paul sets up for us here is how we get there. I've enjoyed thoroughly, one of the things I've enjoyed about being a dad is reading to my children because I get to read books that I was you know, too impatient to listen to my folks read to me when I was little. And one of the things that we've done is we've read through the Winnie the Pooh stories. And, and if you're not familiar with Winnie the Pooh, it's basically about a bunch of stuffed animals that live in the 100-acre wood and then their friend Christopher Robin, who's a little boy. And I think that the books are written as if they're Christopher Robin stuffed animals and his dad is telling him stories about these stuffed animals. Anyway, one day Christopher Robin wanders into the 100-acre wood and he's speaking to Winnie the Pooh, who's a yellow stuffed bear, and Piglet, who's a piglet. Um, and, he's, and Christopher Robin says, I saw a huffalump today, Piglet. And Piglet responds, I saw one once, at least I think I did, only perhaps it wasn't. And then Pooh says, so did I, wondering what a heffalump was like. And as they continue the conversation, Christopher Robin eventually walks away, and Pooh makes the very bold announcement that he wants to catch a heffalump. And so he and Piglet work together to put their brains together to figure out, how are we going to catch this heffalump? They have two very pressing questions, though, that they need to answer. What is a heffalump, and how are we going to catch one? So they come up with a plan. If we dig a very deep pit in the ground, the heffalump will find its way and fall into the pit, and then we can jump out and say, aha, we've caught the heffalump. But there's some problems with their plan, and so eventually they realize that they need to find some bait. But that, that fosters a third question. We don't know what a heffalump eats. Piglet, of course, says acorns. And Pooh, being a bear, says, I think honey. So after some debate, they, they land on using honey. And if you're not familiar with the story, the way the story lands is, what do they catch? Not a huffalump, they catch Pooh, because Pooh loves honey. It sounds silly, and I don't mean to be trite, but it's a great picture of chasing after maturity in this life. Because if we don't know what we're looking for, we're not going to know how to get there. And if the end goal of the Christian life is a full knowledge of Jesus, of being transformed to be like him because we will be in his presence and he will make us like him, the thing that we're chasing after is a knowledge of Jesus above all else. Maturity looks like knowing Jesus. And what Paul sets for us in these verses is not achievement but aim because transformation is Jesus' work. What he sets up for us is what does maturity look like? Maturity doesn't look like getting it all right in this life because you're not going to. Maturity is confessing that you haven't arrived yet. Maturity is learning to trust that Jesus has his hold on you because he loves you. Maturity is learning to not run forward all the while looking backward because what that leads to is running backwards. Maturity looks like your gaze <coughs> forward. Maturity looks like walking alongside other people. Trusting that God is at work in you and in the other people. And learning to trust those other people as well. And the, the reason that that's what maturity is, the reason that maturity is not based on what you can accomplish in this life, it's not based on how awesome your prayer life is, it's not based on how great, how great you think you are, it's because your salvation lies outside of you. Remember where we started. What is Paul's aim? What's in the verse 14? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is maturity because your salvation comes from outside of you. Because your salvation is rooted in the call of God in Christ. 
that God has called into your life, He's spoken into your life through the work of Jesus, teaching you to trust in that work of Jesus. And that's what changes us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, make us to be a people who, who long to know you. Grow in us our knowledge of you, we pray, through the reading of your word, through discussing your word together, through prayer, through the celebration of the sacraments, through gathering for fun and games. Father, we pray that you would change us, that you would shape us to be the people you would have us to be. And we do this trusting, not in our ability, but trusting in your grasp on us, trusting in your call, trusting in the salvation that you set before us. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. Let's stand together and sing what I, I think may be a new song for us. Come and mourn with me a while.